Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, oh my God, we are in the same room together. <laughs> we are in the same room, Joey. It's incredible. Welcome to Carson City. Joey, it's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, what's going on this week for the podcast, Jacob? Well, Joey, this week is the first week of the 2023 Nevada Legislative Session. hey To kick it off, we have an interview with former longtime Assemblywoman Maggie Carlton, who talked with our CEO, John Ralston, and reporter Sean Galanka about her time as one of the most important voices shaping the state budget. Later in the show, we have an interview with Attorney General Aaron Ford and an audio postcard from the first day of the legislative session. Now we're going to hear an interview with Maggie Carlton done by our CEO, John Ralston, and our reporter, Sean Galanka. But just for some context before we get into that interview, Maggie was a longtime Democratic lawmaker who served in both the Nevada Senate and Assembly, and by the end of her tenure was running one of the most important committees in the building. Now, after she's termed out of the legislature, Maggie's on the State Board of Education. We wanted to talk to her for our episode on the first week of the legislative session to get an understanding of someone who has a very robust knowledge of what it means to be a legislator in Nevada. I want to make a note that LCB is brought up a couple of times in this interview, and that is the Legislative Council Bureau, which is a nonpartisan agency that exists to assist legislators from every party in both the Assembly and the Senate with everything from legal advice and background research to writing legislation and amendments. So now that you've got all that, I'll hand it over to John for the interview. Hi, everybody. I'm here with our soon-to-be ace legislative reporter, Sean Galanka, and one of the legends of the Nevada legislature, Maggie Carlton. And by legend, I mean she's been around for a long time, just like me. Let's start by telling people about old times and why you decided to run. People may not know they've heard about the culinary union and their great influence, but you were a culinary worker and you decided to run for the legislature way back when. Tell the story. Well, I was very involved with the culinary union. They had a program with their shop stewards and I was very proud to become a shop steward. In 1993 for the culinary, I was working at Treasure Island in the coffee shop. I was not a cocktail waitress. I want to make sure that it's perfectly clear. Those days were behind me in the rearview mirror. I was a coffee shop waitress and I was working on a project at the culinary union and they had been talking. They had worked on other folks' campaigns and one of the conversations they were having with their shop stewards was, well, we want to run one of our own. You know, it's great to help somebody, but putting somebody who really lives the life into office would be great. So I happened to be in one of those meetings. You know, I was a Girl Scout leader, shop steward, taught Sunday school, had two kids in public school. My husband was a state employee, a parole and probation officer. And you know, some conversations were had about it. And a few months later, folks decided that, yes, we want to run a waitress for office. And yes, we wanted to be Maggie Carlton. And off they went. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, and we can talk about this later, maybe, but but you are the, the consummate example of a citizen legislator, right? Here's a waitress, no experience at all in government. Yeah, you were active in the union, but you had no, you hadn't didn't have much idea of even what the legislature did when you first ran. And it's hard to reconcile that with the Maggie Carlton at the end, running ways and means and, and, and controlling all the stuff at the end. 
Tell tell us about when you first got to Carson City and your first session. Were you a fish out of water? Did you shake your head and say, "Why did I do this?" What were you, when, how did you feel when you first got there? It was it was a real eye opening. My first trip to Carson City with my husband. It was, I believe, right after the election, and it was it was kind of a sad day because I, I walked into the building and the the building the flag on the building was at half mast because the gentleman that I had just beat in the election, Senator Reagan had passed away. So it was kind of a surreal feeling going in and being the newly elected senator from that district. And the flag was in the position that it was. You know, went in, met with LCB. Lauren Malkowich at the time was the director, and he was very, very helpful, you know, because I, I really didn't know what to do. I had I had to have an attache. I needed to know where to live. I needed to figure out what was going on. And you know, back then we really didn't have a program to help folks with it. Now, you know, one of the great things that, that the legislature does is they wrap their arms around all the newly elected folks and they walk them through the process and they help them figure out, okay, this is your next step. There were three freshmen that year. It was Senator Amaday, who's now Congressman Amaday, and Senator Terry Kerr. From that time until now, I mean, in case people don't know, you liked it so much up there that after you were term limited in the Senate, you actually ran for the assembly, which is a very strange thing to have done. Why did you do that? You know, running for the Senate was great and I loved it. And I really had planned on only doing it for the 12 years. I was working for a primary care nonprofit at the time and really wanted to get dive into healthcare more. But when the economic crisis hit, the fiscal crisis, the foreclosure crisis, my assemblywoman was being termed out. There was a couple of folks who were thinking about it, but nobody was really solid on it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm not leaving it better than I found it. I, I need to finish some of the work that needs to get done. So I decided to go ahead and run for the assembly. And and deal I had made with my husband was, okay, we're going to do this a couple times. They're going to find somebody. Things are going to get better. Then I'm going to go do whatever I need to do. And, you know, 11 was a, a good session. I was a freshman with 12 years of experience, which was a unique thing to happen in 13, I ended up being chair of Ways and Means. And when that happened, I stayed. Uh, it was a job that I absolutely loved. I would have never guessed it. The 12 years I was in the Senate, I wasn't on finance at all. I was on commerce and labor. I looked at finance and went, oh, hell no, I'm not going there. But once I experienced it in 11 as a member and had the opportunity to chair it, there was no way I was, you, you could go back. It's a fantastic job and you get to do so many cool things and do so much for the state. So I'm going to let Sean jump in, just in case people don't know. Not everybody is a legislative insider, but uh, Maggie's being somewhat modest. But Ways and Means, chairing Ways and Means, chairing Senate Finance, those are arguably the two most powerful positions in the entire legislature, in some ways more powerful than the leadership positions. And Maggie Carlton knew that, and, and she realized that pretty soon after she took that position. But go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I mean, that gets to what I was thinking. Not, I, I don't think many legislators have the chops to, to chair a finance or ways and means. You know, how did chairing that committee or even serving on it change over the years? You know, you started at a time that the state was in a financial crisis and you ended at a time where the state was again in a financial crisis. Yeah, I crisis. get my butt kicked out right about the time they finally got some money to spend. It was, uh, <laughs> it's been kind of a rough couple of weeks on that, that front, but no, um, yeah, we, we've, we've always had to make tough decisions and we've had 
pretty much divided state government through most of that. You know, it's it's not that the legislature's changed that much. It's just a generational change. The people have changed. It's it's a it's a cultural change. The legislature is much more diverse than it ever was before. You have people with very different perspectives all bringing that to the table and learning things about the different communities that I would have never known before. When I first got elected, it was, I mean, Senator Jake Jacobson used to take us out on rural tours. And, you know, I went out to an alfalfa farm. I went out to one of the fish hatcheries. I mean, I got to learn a lot about rural Nevada and especially Lake Tahoe. Unfortunately, they don't have the time to do those types of things right now. It's very difficult to do. But the the legislature definitely had a different makeup back in 1999 than it does now. And I was very proud that I was part of the first female majority legislature in the country. And we've been, we hadn't really been working towards that. But when you look for really good candidates, that's what we ended up with was a bunch of really good women who wanted to serve. And I think part of that was generational. Even with those changes, those generational changes, increasing diversity, are, are there drawbacks to any of those? Is there a loss of knowledge or? Oh, uh, term limits suck. I'm just going to tell you, right? Term limits put people who are not elected and people who don't even know they exist in control of things. There are lobbyists out there now that are trying to figure out how to undo some of the bills that I worked to get passed for 10 years. There are agency heads that would like to undo some things. You have folks that are not elected making significant changes and proposals. And the, and the only person you have to hold accountable is your elected person. But yet we term limit them, but we let these other guys put their fingerprints all over stuff. So, you know, term, I understand why people feel strongly about term limits. But, you know, honestly, you get a legislator hitting their stride at about four to six years and can really do good work. But yet you arbitrarily decide, oh, you've been around 12 years, you're gone. So I'm not a big fan of term limits, but they were the law when I was elected. I knew that was the game when I signed up, so I really can't complain about it. Except that I'm going to be watching my old legislation to make sure nobody messes with it. You know, we have a citizen's legislature, and I think it's a really great idea. When I'm sitting on the floor as a, on the assembly floor as a coffee shop waitress and I'm working with a teacher, an electrician, a construction worker, someone who served at Metro, people who were in other nonprofits, folks from the rural community, you know, just people from all different walks of life. That, that's what the legislature should be. If we want to have a citizen's legislature, that's the way it needs, needs to be. I don't think you need a legislature full of lawyers. You need folks who think in other ways. We all come from different perspectives. I mean, it's almost contradictory in a way, Maggie, because term limits does gut experience. And, and as, as you mentioned, then it's kind of arbitrary. They set up this certain number of years, and even though we know that maybe because of th- people like me writing negative stuff about the legislature, that they have a a, 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 a bad view of it. Maybe that argues against a citizen legislature. I don't play the devil's advocate. It'd be better these lobbyists and agency heads wouldn't have as much power if you had people who were more professionalized. The professional side really comes from the staff. And I can never, I mean, I give them credit a lot, but we all show up with our own little box of supplies and we're going to do our thing. But it's that attache committee staff, 
fiscal staff, constituent services, and legal staff, and front desk staff uh, on the two on the Senate floor and Assembly floor that really make it run. So we do have a professional legislature. We hire the best people that we can to make the place run. It's just that we're elected to represent the people in our districts, and they help us do that at the highest level possible. It's killing me not to be there, isn't it, Maggie? It's killing me. It's it's just killing me. I had a list of stuff to do when COVID hit that basically, you know, I had a little bit of brown liquor and a glass and toasted and said, bye-bye, baby, because this stuff ain't happening, you know. One of the one of the hardest memories that I have is during the COVID special session, we all had to spread out because of COVID, right? So everybody spread out all over the room, big, huge room. And I remember seeing some of the freshmen and sophomores sitting out in, in the audience and we were talking about, and I have a list of cuts. And I said, okay, guys, we're all in this together. Y'all wanted to have this conversation. So here we go. We're going to have this conversation. We started listing the cuts. There, there were tears. They had to make tough decisions about making cuts. It was one of the hardest days of my life, I'll tell you. You know, special sessions suck, but that, that particular night was probably the worst of my legislative career. But we all came out of that room and they all understood we had to do these things to be able to save certain programs. We had to prioritize but one of the last things said to them is, remember this. Don't ever forget being in this position. Make sure that in the future, money goes back to these people and you grow these programs and you value this. Don't just push the button and move on. Remember how this made you feel. I do want to return to one question about the session, but you're going into this new role or started this new role in the State Board of Education. You know, what are your thoughts on this new role? What do you hope to accomplish in this role? I was absolutely thrilled when I got the call to ask me if if I would be interested. And I, I thought about it and discussed it with my husband. He was like, really? But I said, yeah, I, I think so. I, I would like to do this. I'm very thankful for, for Governor Sisolak appointing me. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've got a maybe a master's degree in the legislature now. I mean, I don't have an actual college degree, but I think I, I could probably test out of some stuff with the stuff that's happened in the legislature over the last 24 years to be on the Board of Education and bring the same voice that I brought to the legislature to the board. I mean, they do overarching policy for the whole state, all 17 counties. It's Superintendent Ebert and I, I think, are going to do really well together. I really, she, you know, there, there have been times we've locked horns, of course, but that's just the nature of the executive branch and the legislature. But I've always respected her. She's always done a great job and I look forward to working with her. You know, we all care about making sure that every kid in this state gets a good education, no matter what their zip code is, no matter what IEP they have, what challenge that they have. We want to make sure every kid gets a good education. I just want to return to to the legislature to wrap things up. You know, we've heard from Governor Lombardo about what he wants in this session, what he wants out of the budget. We've heard from Democratic leaders in the legislature. What are you expecting some of the key fights, the key tension points to be during this session? Well, first of all, when he delivered the budget to the building Monday, it became the legislative budget. It's no longer his budget. So what will be worked on and passed at the end of May will be the legislatively approved budget because that is the legislature's responsibility. I'm sure there's issues they're going to be able to work together on. I'm sure there's issues that they might as well not even bring up. 
I was very, very happy to see former Senator Key Keffer as chief of staff for Governor Lombardo. Ben knows the budget. Ben and I have worked on the budget when he was in the majority in 15 and I flipped to the minority. We work very closely together. We always have. He has a, a good heart for making sure that, you know, programs for, for kids and especially kids with special needs get taken care of. And he was right next to me when we were holding higher education accountable on certain issues. So knowing that he's there watching all this and working on this makes me feel really good that the legislative leaders have someone that they can sit down to the table with and not have to start from 101 with them. He gets it. He's done the budget. He knows how all this works. You know, there's some other good folks down in the Senate that, that really get this. They, they understand too. So it's give and take. The governor doesn't decide what's in this budget. Okay. We've had to educate other governors. It's not his budget anymore. It belongs to the legislature. We'll be happy. They'll be, I say we'll. See, I'm still saying we. They will be happy to take the amendments, but they don't have to be addressed. They'll do what they think is best for the people of the state and their constituents and go forward from there. You know, I think one of the things that's hard for governors, and I'm not, this isn't aimed at at Governor Lombardo specifically, but I think what happens was hard for a lot of governors. They are the chief executive of the state, and they're used to saying, it's my way or the highway. This is how we're going to get stuff done. The legislature doesn't operate that way. The legislature is truly, the you've called it the gang of 63 for as long as I can remember. We really are a gang of 63, and you've got to be able to count to a certain number to get stuff done. And you have to take a lot of things into consideration, rural, urban, cowboy, mining, gaming, construction. There's all kinds of things that you have to blend into the melting pot of Nevada. We really are a purple state. And we all have to remember that. And, you know, the legislature over the years has gotten more partisan. But a number of us who've been around a while have worked really hard to roll that back. I mean, I've recommended to a number of my Democratic freshmen, go find a Republican to make your best friend and get to know where they're coming from. So when the rubber hits the road one night, you've got to make a tough decision. You've got somebody you can talk to and trust. Maggie, thanks for being here. Good luck on the Board of Education. And I'm sure that Sean will see you wandering around the legislative building. Grab her, Sean. She'll have, she'll give you some insight. All right, Jacob. Well, we are hanging out in a busy hallway here at the legislature right now, uh, recording the, the, uh, the next part of the podcast. You're right. You're getting this live. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the Legislative Building. So now we're going to jump to another interview with a powerful figure here in Nevada politics. That's right. Reporter Tabitha Mueller sat down with Attorney General Aaron Ford shortly after he was re-elected to a second term. He'll be talking about his relationship with Governor Joe Lombardo, his proposed bills, and more. When you think about your working relationship with Lombardo, what is that going to look like? Do you have any idea? What conversations have you had with him already so far? So far, so good. Listen, I've worked with Lombardo for the last, geez, I've been in elected politics since 2012, and I've worked with him since then. I put body cameras on his cops. You know, we worked together on that. It wasn't a big fight. He happened to be bargaining with his unit at that time on body cameras, and so we worked together on those types of issues. I was in the state Senate. I've been the top law enforcement officer in the state for the last four years and worked with him on legal issues or law enforcement issues. And so, you know, I anticipate an amicable 
working relationship to be sure there are political differences. But as the governor himself said today, we have to put those aside for the betterment of the state. I have clients and he's one of them, but I'm the people's lawyer first. And so I'm looking forward to him putting us putting politics aside and working for the people of the state of Nevada. Hey, it's Joey jumping in here for a second. Photographer David Calvert was also with Tabitha during this interview, and he asked a question, but he was a little hard to hear in the audio, so I'm going to read his question here. It's not the first time that there's been a divided executive branch like this. Are there lessons to be learned from the past, maybe with Catherine Cortez Masto and Brian Sandoval, or even frankly, Brian Sandoval and Adam Laxalt? And this sort of, you know, when you're not on the same page, what kind of tension does that create? Yeah, certainly lessons to be learned from Catherine and and Brian or Attorney General Cortez Masto and Governor Sandoval. They had an amicable relationship. There were times where they disagree and they disagree you know, agreeably and figured out a way to get things done nonetheless. I anticipate there'll be some disagreements here as well. There are lessons to be learned from the Laxalt Sandoval relationship as well and things not to do. Uh, I intend to have conversation. I intend to be communicative with the governor. I intend for the governor to likewise be communicative to me. Mutual respect is important in these types of circumstances, and, and I anticipate being able to emulate that on a going forward basis. And Lombardo has said that he wants to get rid of some of the soft on crime policies that the state has. What kind of your stance on it, especially because so many of those were passed during the last legislative session while you were in office? And I know that you are working with lawmakers, even if maybe your name wasn't signed on a bill or yeah. something. Well, let's be clear. He and I have a disagreement on what soft on crime looks like. And he can pursue what he believes is an appropriate legislative approach. I'm going to pursue what I think is appropriate legislative approach. And frankly, it's up to neither of us to determine what the legislature is going to do. And then... We saw the death penalty kind of take a very big focus during the last legislative session Uh, at the end of Sislak's term. And you're on the pardons board. He did put on the agenda to sort of talk about making sure that inmates who were on death row would would not be actually killed. What is your stance on the death penalty? Did you decide not to be vocal for a reason around that? What was kind of your thought process when when Sislak put that forward at the end of his term? Well, there are a number of questions there. So let me answer the, the one that everyone should know the answer to already, my stance on the death penalty. I've made that clear since the very first time I ran for office 12 years ago. I'm opposed to the death penalty, have always been and will always be opposed to the death penalty. It is a misused and oftentimes discriminatory practice that leads to irreversible consequences when you are wrong. So I do not support the death penalty. But as I've also said, as a top law enforcement officer in the state, I will enforce the law. And the law is a death penalty. And positive is the fact that I am right now embroiled in litigation, trying to fulfill my duties as counsel to the Department of Corrections as an execution is scheduled to take place. And so I will do my job, but I'm opposed to the death penalty. The next part of your question was, you know, why I didn't say much in this last go around. I am counsel to the governor. I am counsel to the pardon board. <laughs> I'm on the pardons board, so I'm always very cautious with what I say out loud because it can present a problem in, in litigation. It can present a problem policy-wise. So I try to be very cognizant of that fact. You know, that said, as I said at the end of that pardons board meeting, additional conversation should be had from a policy level, whether it's at the pardons board level or over at the legislative building, around ways to address this issue. When you're talking about wrestling with this personally, and then you also have your job, what would you want the public to know sometimes about your role that they might not understand? What an attorney general can and cannot do? Yeah, that's a very good question. My first job as the people's lawyer is to clearly represent the interests of those who live in this state. I have clients as well. Sometimes those interests seem to conflict. And so what I'm able to do to the extent there are clear-cut answers to it is to speak up on behalf of the people and and push back on administrative approaches that that would violate rights but absent that my job you know has to be to 
enforce the law as written and to do the best that I can to reconcile those competing interests. The death penalty is a great example. I'm opposed to it, but I'm having to enforce it. I sleep fine at night because here's what I know, that there is someone in the Office of Attorney General who is ensuring that if there is to be a death penalty, whatever happens in that context is going to be a constitutionally authorized execution. We're going to ensure that the cocktail being used, because I'm going to ensure that the cocktail being used is something that is constitutional, that the fog that is given to every single issue leading up to the execution of someone under the current laws of our state is on the right side of the Constitution. My next question is about, you know, the upcoming legislative session. Are there any bill draft requests that you've put in that you would like to talk with us about or that you are particularly excited about? Well, sure. I mean, listen, I, I think uh, I'm uh, allocated 20 BDRs. I only put in, I think, 14 this year because I don't believe in just doing stuff just to do it. And so I'm excited about all of these. You know, we have bills that relate to tobacco where we're going to try to ensure that we continue to improve our record of cutting back on underage smoke. We have bills that relate to fentanyl where, where we are recognizing that we, we need to increase penalties for those who are trafficking in fentanyl and what it means to traffic fentanyl. We have bills that relate victims and trying to support them through victims advocates. I don't have one in my own office and we need one. And so we had asked for one via this bill that's going to cost money. And I hope that the legislature and the governor see fit to afford us a victim's advocate so that we can help victims who are victims of crime. We're going to continue focusing on the crime of domestic violence and stalking and protective orders and things of that sort. So you know, we're, we're happy about that. We're going to continue protecting the elderly. We have bills that protect the elderly relative to uh, guardianship issues. And so, you know, we're very excited about the upcoming legislative session. We think every single one of our bills is going to pass as they have in the past because we work hard and we ensure that we're able to have everyone at the table to work through whatever issues and kinks there may be. You know, we've seen a lot of states decriminalize drugs or work to do that. Is that something that's on your priority list at all for bill drafts? These 14 have nothing to do with it. And I'm going to focus on these at this point. They have six or three legislators over there who may have some ideas in that regard. And I'll be, I look forward to reading what they may have to say about it. But at this juncture, I'm focusing on 14 we put in. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. So, Tim, you, what time did you get here today? Eight. How are, you feel, how are you feeling about it so far? I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob, were you having a riveting time in the press room watching it on the TV? Yeah. Good audio in the, t in the press room. Yeah, it's true. One, the one remote controls both TVs. <laughs> Wait, so how do you change? You just got to get real close to one or the other. <laughs> and then how are you feeling about the first day of the session? Is it fun, interesting, boring? It's very interesting. I'm just absorbing and going with the motions. Okay. Hi, I'm Lucia Starbuck. I'm the democracy reporter for KUNR Public Radio, also hosting a new show called Purple Politics Nevada. We're, we're uh, sister podcasts. Yes. yes. So how are you feeling about day one of uh, the 2023 legislative session? Oh my goodness, I think I'm feeling every emotion under the sun. <laughs> a little a little nervous, but also super excited and, and enthusiastic. Nice. Yeah, what do you want to know? Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, David. How's it going, day one? Uh, it's an uh, exciting day. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's your, what's your like fifth session? Something like that. Yeah. It's hard to keep track because I covered a lot of the special sessions lately. Right. Um, it's nice to have people back in the building. Uh, the energy is definitely different. Um, it's you know kind of cool to see all the families and everything. And uh, the lawmakers are joking around about everybody getting along because it's the first day. And uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. All right. Here, we, here I am. I am here with uh, lobbyist Elliot Mallon. Hey, Elliot. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing well. How's the first day of the session going? Good. It's fine. I mean, besides 
I already have a fire to put out. Yeah, what's the fire? Will you tell me? Yeah, I've got to get find money. There was a mistake made on uh, Holocaust education funding, and so I've got to get the money into the program. Let's also talk about the fact that you're complaining about the there's a, a library. Big gripe is the new library. Yeah. Which, which is replacing the food court. Which is replacing a, the food court, which was a blind establishment. It was required to be a blind business. So it was supposed to help individuals break into business. Um, and it was great for us because there was a lot of seating and people could, could talk. And the food was always good. Welcome to the Any Matters Podcast, Sean Galanka. Hello, Joey Lovato. This is Sean Galanka speaking. <laughs> uh, how are you feeling about day one of the 82nd meeting of the Nevada legislature. Feeling good, feeling good. Um, you know, we've we've seen a lot of people coming in today, a very, very busy building on this day. Uh, straight down the hall from where I'm currently looking, there was a large gaggle of lobbyists for, for most of the morning before uh, things got a little split up into the assembly and Senate floor sessions. So. Yeah. I'm kind of just watching, we're kind of in the middle area here of the, of the legislative building, kind of just watching people kind of come and go. What's going on in the assembly right now? So right now, uh, basically they're, um, they're, they're on an agenda item, which I believe might be referred to as, as floor remarks or member remarks from the floor or something like that. Basically, every member of the assembly gets three minutes to speak. Um, and today, because it's a, a special day, pretty much everyone is there with friends or, or members of their family and so they're using that time basically just to to shine a light on on their family members and, and give them a spotlight and some love uh, publicly lobbyists William Adler welcome to the podcast again you, you've been this is your second time on the podcast now it, it was an honor last time and it's a pleasure again thanks you Joey you're welcome so uh, day one of the, the 82nd legislative session how you feeling we're doing it live and we're feeling fine and frisky, I think. Uh, honestly, it, it, it's hitting me like a truck compared to last session because last session we, we opened the, the esteemed Nevada legislature in our sweatpants at home, you know, via Zoom. So this year it actually feels real and like we're actually beginning the 120 days. Well, I'm here with Bert Gerr, uh, new uh, freshman assemblyman. How's it going? Freshman assemblyman. It's great. Yeah. It's, a, it's exciting. It is really an honor to be here. Yeah. It is a, an amazing process. Yeah. Is this is this kind of what you expected, or you know, what were your expectations today? Yeah. Well, it was more intense than I expected, but uh, yeah, pretty much. What do you? How are you feeling about the session so far? What do you think the big uh, like issue is going to be this session, or, or policy thing that's well, going to happen? There's, I think there's two big issues: education, number one, or number one and and a tie with water. So those two are the big issues I think that'll be coming along, how to spend the, the money we've got. But I think education and water are the two big issues. Yeah, water, I mean, water is always a huge issue. And you represent a rural area, right? Where, where in the Nevada are you representing? District 33, I represent uh, most of Elko County, most of Eureka, all of White Pine, all of Lincoln, three quarters of nine. That <laughs> you have a huge county by landmass. 46,000 square miles roughly on my own guess. I haven't had it done, but I will for sure and find out. Which amounts to about 1.46 people per square mile. How does it feel standing in that chamber behind your desk for the day one? It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's such an honor. You know, and with that comes all the responsibility of doing what's right. 
not what I consider what's right particularly, but what's right for the state of Nevada and the people in it. And really for my rurals, protect the hell out of them, so. All right, Bert, well, thank you so much. Thank you. We are back in the noisy hallway, and thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. The show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rundells, Tom Tate, and Tim Leonard. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.